0: again, now uh, with still cinema one. Gildelus is cinema one, the movement image. Now we're gonna be starting from I guess chapter nine, the action image, uh, having covered a whole slew of other things, so obviously go check out the previous two episodes, because it'd be totally strange if you just jumped right into this one. No, and it'd <laughs> part, be fine. Part it'd three be fine. This part's oh, better. I love part three. <laughs> like it's the best <laughs> part. I don't know, it might end up being the best part. Who knows? Uh, but thank God I'm here with Christina, because otherwise I'd be totally screwed. Uh,
1: and yeah, Christina, who are you? I'm Christina L. Burke. I'm a third-year PhD student at the Center for the Study of Theory and Criticism the University of Western Ontario. I don't think I mentioned the University of Western Ontario the past few times. I don't think you did, but Yeah. I that's okay i'll put that in the description um, yeah i study uh cinema and philosophy particularly the relationship between uh french new way films and uh the philosophy of the period um i'm also a writer i've written a screenplay so i'm also involved in a lot of creative work and uh if you enjoy goofs and being horny on maine you can hit me up on twitter at, at cello burke i'm the same on instagram if you want to see cute cat pictures And uh, if you're in London, Ontario, hit me up on Lex. (laughs) Cello like the instrument. Like the instrument. Cello Burke. Yes. Awesome.
0: All right. So now we're on to the action image, having covered the perception image and the affection image. Moving now naturally into the action image. (laughs) So what the hell is the action image? We're finally in a place where things matter. (laughs) (laughs) Because it does. Because it does. He He gives us stuff that makes sense, at least to me
1: yeah and i think i think i can solve our naturalism problem okay good from last from the last one so realism for Deleuze, and realism is what's going to define american cinema right realism is based on a defined milieu okay yeah yeah and and certain prescribed modes of behavior right so people are expected to act a certain way the characters have a habitus yeah and so i think this is in contrast with naturalism in the previous chapter where the world isn't defined yet okay it's it's nature that hasn't been coded it hasn't been written right so for Deleuze I think naturalism is this more originary or pure state of the world and then realism is after the world has been sort of overwritten with certain values okay yeah fair if that helps if anyone I wonder if there are people sitting at home going, I know what naturalism means. It means this. Well, if you do know, leave a comment yeah. and explain it because that would be great. Uh, but yeah, so we're in the realm of secondness now as secondness. opposed to firstness. So right. secondness refers to things sort of in their proper context, being being recognized as an embodiment of certain powers or qualities. Right. They're, they're actual. There's a state of things. Yeah. Yeah. And he gives us this this formula for the, the sort of large form, he calls it, of the action image. Situation, action, transformed situation. Yep. S-A-S prime or yep. S-A-S dash. Yep. And so this creates what he's going to, following Purse, call sin signs, which right. are sets of power qualities actualized in Amelia. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is a little bit more straightforward. I think so. And he's also going to introduce the idea of the binomial, which is the duel that takes place in the action images. Yeah. The large form of the action image always has a duel to it. Yeah. So right away, he's sort of like, this is a prelude. I'm going to talk about Westerns. <laughs> I mean, Western is the best example yes. for this. Without a doubt. Um, before that, he does talk about documentaries and particularly the early documentaries of Robert Flaherty, like Nanook of the North. Um, right, yeah. etc. And these are just SAS. There's no transformation. It right. just shows us a society struggling against these challenges that face it and how they get through it. Yeah. Um, and then... So we have the Western, SAS Prime. Yep. And sort of there's the milieu as this like ambiance or encompasser that has a sort of breath to it a civilization and organization there's there's a almost like spirit here and we see it moving through the sort of western world and he contrasts that with a sort of neo-western where uh, the West sort of becomes civilization, right? Um, and so he talks about uh, John Ford's "The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance." Here, uh, that movie is about a a senator who's renowned for this historic deed. He he killed the bandit Liberty Valance. But he confess confesses to journalists that it wasn't him who actually did this it was actually this sort of cowboy type figure um but they all end up deciding that no 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 we're not gonna we're not gonna reveal the truth of this the story's too good that this sort of figure of sort of urbane civilization managed to overcome the outlaw spirit of the west um and so, in the large form of the action image, what we see is sort of a dream of community and a community's illusions. And so in in kind of American film, that's it's as teleological as kind of the Soviet film that there is this this sort of higher realization, but that dream is the the American dream. yeah, the kind of frontierism, the he calls it a genetic universal history. So, again, there's this very biological association yeah. with the American cinema. Yeah. Again, it doesn't really think. It just assumes this is the course of things. Right. Um, and he talks about how... In certain films, there is this desire to constantly rediscover America, <laughs> right? Uh... which I thought was really funny, because in Ford's films, that feels like it's especially the case, uh-huh. um, that, that the frontier is this hey, new they, America each new time. Frontier. Yeah. Uh, and there's a the kind Marlboro, of... Man. Yeah, there's a real, there's a real sort of organic, um quality to this I think and then he goes on a bit of a tangent in the next, next section he talks about Fritz Long's M uh, and he's, he's trying to bring out the idea of the duel here that M as a film is about a duel between the police and the gangsters to catch this criminal who's acting out of order um, and so we What we learn about the action image is that there's this gap that exists in it, but this gap is waiting to be filled. It's not just an emptiness. And what he talks about in relation to the action image is that the heroes in them sort of await a people. And here again, Ford. Right? Yeah. Like Ford's Westerns or something like High Noon or something like that. All these films, there is there is a lone hero who rises within the community and then the community is realized through his actions right um and the situation that you know we are first presented
0: with necessitates the action yeah like it, it is in some sense responsible for the action that then changes that situation yes in the end
1: yeah and so uh yeah he, he talks about this as a sensory motor schema um, that we're constantly moving from, like, low-energy vegetative pole to explosive animal pole. Yeah. Uh, it's just built into the structure to it. Uh, the global situation becomes these micro-situations. Um, and then he goes off on this weird thing where, maybe not that weird, but it's strange to me that he starts talking about the actor studio. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you tell um, me,
1: I... Sure, I, I I know what he's referring to. To this, he's referring to the films of like Elia Kazan, the early Marlon Brando films, so *Streetcar Named Desire*, *On the Waterfront*. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah these yeah, yeah, sort of yeah, films. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so he he talks about how in this type, style of performance, it's only the inner that counts. Yeah. And um, object and emotion become the sign of this genetic history that he talked about before uh but there's still this kind of this this permeating situation that calls for these explosions of emotion right i think that's what he's getting at there i didn't completely understand the actor I mean, studio reference i think so i i think that
0: that's fair yeah. I, and there's no i couldn't give you any better answer <laughs> yeah
1: it's 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 a strange it's a it's a strange departure because i don't know anyone has viewed Uh, that, that way I think most people would just talk about Ilya Kazan, but it's, he, he wants to bring in that style of performance and suggest a continuity between the, I guess the more sort of deliberately performative acting of the forties and then the method acting of the fifties. Sure. That there's still, there's still these large forms of the action image. Um, and to a certain extent, I think that's true. Yeah. I think as Hollywood sort of collapsed in the 60s, the it started to blur yeah. a bit more. And so then we get the small form mm-hmm. of the action image. Yep. Or uh, ASA prime. So as opposed to
0: SAS, where situation, action, new situation, or SAS prime, sorry, new situation, now we have ASA. Action situation, new action, or action prime. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> for some reason, okay, tell me if I'm wrong. I couldn't get Blue Velvet out of my head when thinking about this, and the reason for that is because we have this character in this pretty bland world. The mm-hmm. situation does not necessitate the action that it should, it, the the action comes from without the set the, that that you know, white picket fence situation, and the guy finds the the thumb or the finger? The ear. The ear, yeah. The yeah. F- I'm thinking of friends, I think, with the thumb and the... Uh, finds the ear. And for me, I was just thinking, oh, okay, we have this action that necessitates this person then moving into the situation that is this deep, dark underbelly of this world... And then I don't know what the new action is at the end, I just I got, that's as far as I got. That's as far as I got. Well it's it's the this. the
1: character gains a habitus, right? So he he um, starts off very innocent. Oh, I see. And then he he goes sort of on this journey where he finds this ear and he meets this woman and he engages in this sadomasochistic relationship. Right. But then at the end of the movie he ends up with the sweet nice girl having gone through that. Sure. And so so what he what he, what is kind of affirmed is a very sort of classical mode of behavior. Right. But it has to go through this sort of darker situation to get there.
0: So is that a good analogy? Does that does that work?
1: I I think yeah, the similarities between Blue Velvet and like a detective film yeah, really it, sort of bring that it is up. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So the the detective film is going to be uh, an ASA Prime. Right. As okay. opposed to a film noir. It's not sort of a detective film like a, yeah. a a double indemnity would be a large form. Yeah. But a a uh... <coughs> sorry the um the the Howard Hawks noir is like the big sleep are going to be small form because they're detective stories.
0: Right. Right.
1: Or at least at least that's how I read it. Um, I think that's right. So. Yeah, he also talks about the costume film versus the historical film. And so... And then the burlesque eventually. Yeah, yeah. The, the costume film I think is really interesting uh, in terms of my own stuff. Because reading these two sections, I was like, okay, which one is Little Women? Okay. Is, is Little Women right. the large form or the small form? And I, I think it's the small form. I think it's more of a costume film than a historical film in Deleuze's sort of uh, categories. <laughs> uh if we're going if we're going to talk about it as a movement image yeah um but yeah that was that was just something i was thinking about i I mean that's interesting
0: i i I don't know (laughs) i won't solve this problem for you no i i'm gonna
1: i'm gonna need to work on this more
0: i'll take your word for it It yeah in in the section
1: of my dissertation greta gerwig's movement image i will answer that question Mm -hmm. then the section greta gerwig's time image well we'll see yeah yeah (laughs) um So yeah, from here he goes to Hawks, and uh, sort of, he talks about this as a kind of skeleton space.
0: So what are some of Hawks' films again?
1: Um, Rio Bravo with John Wayne, and sort of it's about John Wayne gathering together a group of people to resist a bunch of bandits who are attacking the town. Right, very American. Yes. Uh, I like it. Well, actually, no, I hate it, (laughs) but I, I get it. I think Rio Bravo is a tremendous film. Is it? Uh, yes, uh, but these these are Hawks' films. Is uh, something something happens, and then a situation emerges, and then they necessitate sort of a response to that situation. Right. So the the action that begins. Gentlemen prefer blondes is Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell are looking for a husband. Situation, action, marriage. Right you know and there's comedy along the way it's 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 a comedic film right yeah and so that's what i was kind of thinking of but he he talks about small form westerns here uh the the most famous example he probably he uses is the wild bunch which again these are bandits at the end of the west they don't have a lot going for them they're the ones acting they're not responding to a situation yeah <laughs> um and then we get the discussion of Chaplin and Keaton yep. and the burlesque. Yep. And so he talks about the laughter emotion circuit. Yeah, I know nothing about it.
0: Yeah, I like I'm familiar. And he makes reference to the Chaplin film City Lights, mm-hmm. I, and I and I love that movie. Uh, City Lights is real good. <laughs> Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. For those that haven't seen it, City Lights <laughs> will make you cry. Like if you think it'll you're... make you laugh a lot and then you will cry. <laughs> it's it's, yeah. it's it's something
1: that City Lights. Yeah. Uh but yes, sorry. The the laughter emotion yeah. So he he comes up with this theory of comedy of the laughter emotion circuit and for Chaplin um he's really interested in uh particularly the later Chaplin films when talking comes into them and he's, he talks about this idea of discourse. Yeah. And sort of in Chaplin there's like this, the dictator yeah. and um there's the other one, Monsieur Verdoux, okay. is the one he brings up and how the the sort of the tr- the tramp character doesn't uh function in these films anymore and Chaplin has to become something else. Right. Uh but there's and he also talks about how Chaplin has a kind of play with um, machines and that the characters engage with machines and the machine creates a problem and they have to resolve it. So the famous scene in modern times where Chaplin gets eaten by the machine.
0: After he's working on (laughs) that, he's working on the the assembly line
1: and he can't keep up with it and he's got to follow it along to get... Yeah. Uh, And so... This is opposed to Keaton, where Keaton gives a kind of burlesque to the large form. Uh, and the general is sure. the most obvious one here. We're in the Civil War. There's yeah. this mission that needs to be done. So Keaton undertakes it. But of course, it's completely farcical. He's, yeah. he's rather inept. But in the end, he ends up doing the right thing. He destroys the bridge to prevent right. the the train supply from working. And so with Keaton, it's less of this sort of conflict with the machine and more, again, a kind of machinic assemblage. Machines are kind of part of Keaton's work. So Sherlock Jr., he's part of the film. Yeah. And, you know, there's this this interchange between the projector and the character. Right. You know, Keaton, Keaton doesn't have Chaplin's sort of skepticism towards sure. modernity. Mm-hmm. And Deleuze has this sort of quote where he talks about the anarchistic machinic versus the communist humanism of Chaplin. <laughs> and I remember I remember feeling really put on the spot because if, if I have to choose one of those. Uh, <laughs> but I, I like Buster Keaton more than Chaplin. Yeah, uh, and I, I
0: think I think Deleuze does too.
1: I, I think yeah, I think I think Deleuze ends up revealing that he does too. Maybe just because he's in Beckett's film. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, the the, the keaton analysis. I this is this is where I really like my my affection for this book really increased. Right. Like I was like, oh, this is this is fun now. Like we got through your your weird early film history <laughs> and you're just you're just analyzing American cinema and you're yeah. doing, you're doing a good job. I'm on board with this. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true though. Yeah. It was certainly like it made more sense to me. Especially the and the way you said it was, I don't need to make it any better. I'm just reiterating <laughs> it like the kind of blending and Buster Keaton with the, with the machines. Yeah. And that is, that is for those people maybe not so familiar with what it is, a very important thing in his work uh, because we are machines to some <laughs> extent. We are comprised of machines and machines are essentially what we interact with. They, they have their own autonomy. They have their own kind of patterns, their own ways of being. And we shouldn't forget that. And we shouldn't just subsume them under a big Oedipal umbrella. (laughs) That's just one, you know,
1: misstep. Anyways, What work could you possibly be talking about? (laughs) Sorry. 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 We're talking about cinema now. We're talking about (laughs)
0: cinema. I'm going to shut up. See, but so long ago, well, not so long ago, when Christina and I talked about first doing this, I remember she said, she was like, uh, I want to talk to someone you know, maybe not so familiar with the the cinema Deleuze, but more into the a Thousand Plateaus and uh Anti Oedipus Deleuze and like I d I I don't know if I said this, but in my head I was like, I don't even know that stuff,
1: so like <laughs> I don't know what good I'm gonna be. No, no, Christ. it's it, it's good. I think I think we've made we've made we've made some good allusions to let's let's call it the classic Deleuze or Deleuze and Guattari. Right. The teasing yeah teasing a bit. Okay, so chapter 11, we get this chapter on figures. We get Eisenstein one more time. Um, but in the figure section, he's he's really doing this platonic discussion about the large and the small. Yeah. And basically what he's trying to say is that the large and the small are equal in that they're both ideas. <laughs> right, yeah, they have just these concepts. <laughs> So it's it's something to just be like, you no, know, they're not. And we're going to get into the metaphysicians.
0: Same. Like, okay. Yeah. So at this point, I was like, my brain was fried. And I'm like trying to read this. And then he introduced that. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. I do not have enough energy at this point to understand what the hell he's saying. So what does he mean? What does he mean by the their ideas?
1: So I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to avoid... Uh, any privileging of one over the other. Sure. We're not supposed to take the large form of the action image as good and the small form as bad or vice versa. Yeah. Um, they're both, they're both equally capable of expressing something. Yeah. And they can both, I guess, be embodied in someone's work. This leads to his discussion of Werner Herzog. So you have a film like, uh... Aguirre the Wrath of God or Fitzcarraldo or you know these are large form films they're about these explorers braving these these uh South American situations they're very epic mm-hmm. sort of in their structure um they have this sublime quality but Herzog also makes films about really small things and the the obvious horrible pun here is even dwarf started small is the first example that Liz gives of I a mean, small that, form film.
0: That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. That's that makes um, sense.
1: But he also talks about how Herzog's idea of Nosferatu where Nosferatu is this already withered thing. Yeah. And is having to start sort of from an action and is defined by its hab its habitus, not by the sort of um, situation. Yeah. Uh and then he moves in to talking about landscape and Japanese cinema. And he...
0: Which he doesn't say a whole lot about.
1: No, but he we can sort of draw a few connections. So for Kurosawa, this is sort of a large form. Yeah. Uh but it's It's not about just the transformed situation. Kurosawa is interested in a question. Okay. Or what he will define as any question, whatever. Right. So the example he gives is of the film Ikaru, which I think is sometimes translated as Ikaru and other times translated as To Live in the book, but they're the same movie. (laughs) Okay. Um, And so this is a movie about a sort of low-ranking bureaucratic figure who finds out he's terminally ill and so he decides to use his last days to sort of fund this public park yeah and so what he ends up what we end up learning through the film is this question about what it means to sort of reproduce things or make sure life can keep going okay and it's that question that's important it's not the sort of sentimentality of what he's able to accomplish yeah and this is what this is what Deleuze says sort of defines Kurosawa as this circulation, this the, the breath that we found in Ford. Yeah. And he doesn't make explicit a sort of connection between Kurosawa and Ford, but that's a very popular okay. sort of reading. Kurosawa was a very big fan of John Ford. Sure. And I think you can see a lot in both of them. With Mizaguchi uh, Kenji Mizuguchi. Um, what you get is sort of a lengthening of the small form, and this is this is like he he calls it the the broken stroke, okay, or the sort of wrinkled stroke. And he has a line here that that I absolutely loved, and I put it on Twitter as soon as I saw it, <laughs> where he says the the lines of the universe are feminine, but the social state is prostitutional. Okay, and this is this is Mizoguchi's work. There are these 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 women who define the universe whose actions determine the situations yeah but the situation always ends up circumscribing them to a kind of defeat or failure or limit and so there's there's they're very tragic films mizuguchi's work yeah uh sancho the bailiff um the life of oharu uh there are others all of his films are fantastic they're absolutely beautiful but I think in that line, Deleuze really captures something about his work. Yeah. And yeah, yeah he's, um, if, you, if you think Japanese film tends to be sexist on the whole, Mizuguchi is one of the few directors who's like, oh, no, I know it's bad and I will show you <laughs> and we will think about this. <laughs> so as opposed to Kurosawa's very macho samurai cinema, Mizuguchi has a cinema of, of women and their experience in both both feudal and contemporary japan sure and it's absolutely phenomenal yeah um just give me a second so moving on from there we get to chapter 12 here we go crisis of the action image what was wrong with the action image oh What, what, what happens to the action image christina tell me well first are you ready for one of DeLiz's favorite late book twists? Always. Thirdness. Yeah. Oh, hey, every chapter of this book is divided into thirds.
0: <laughs>
1: oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, there's always three sections. Yeah. Three sub-subchapters. Yes, because you need thirdness to represent mental relations or thought. What a Hegelian i think
0: he i think he's got to <laughs> dial this back a little bit
1: but it's it's not synthetic sure sure it's it's not synthetic yeah a triad is not again there's no negation you're right Third, thirdness does not negate right. secondness secondness does not negate firstness yep yeah. yep
0: yeah, yep yeah, yep yeah, yep yeah, yep yeah.
1: so we're stuck with this
0: thirdness this yeah kind of
1: love triangle yes at and the heart of this book and it will be in the second one too each section is in three parts you should have waited for that punchline after I'd read that one. It would have really blown me away. But yeah, that's 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 one of my one of my things where I'm just like, oh, you, you jerk, you, you. And this and
0: and and the, and the Marx Brothers embody this 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 thirdness this one two and three-ness
1: yes uh it
0: all comes down to the marx brothers
1: <laughs> it really does marx brothers and hitchcock <laughs> yeah marx brothers. <laughs> marx brothers and hitchcock the two third. poles yeah. of uh thirdness yeah, yeah. um yes yeah, so uh yeah the the marx brothers you have uh i think it's harpo who's firstness yep uh chico who's second and then groucho is third yep he's the sort of interpretant yep um but of course because all three participate they all belong to thirdness (laughs) (laughs) right uh and so when he gets into hitchcock he comes up with this fascinating thing that everything in hitchcock is interpretation yep and so the criminal kind of always does his crime for the innocent man i think that's really fascinating uh and you can see this in like north by northwest uh the wrong man with henry fonda um it goes on the hitchcock oeuvre is this entirely and he he seems to praise hitchcock for like acknowledging that there isn't just the director and his film the public plays a role here
0: we get the spectator
1: yeah we get the emergence of a spectator And so we get these sort of intellectual, very intellectualized feelings on the character's behalf. They're thinking about their situation. And then there's a sort of evolution of relations here. Um, And this can become tragic as in Vertigo. Sure. Uh, But oftentimes is kind of like comedic or ends positively. Um, Or you get something like the birds, which ends in this weird sort of uh, balance between nature and people um and he talks about how in hitchcock characters become assimilated to spectators they are watching themselves rear window is the most famous example i can think of here and this is going to create a rupture in the sensory motor right that was so important before But Hitchcock isn't going to take us there. Hitchcock is fine with mental relations, but he's not going to make them Mm self-reflexive. They're not going to begin to wonder about their situation. So this is the crisis of the action image. It's put to its limit in Hitchcock. The action image is a kind of spectator figure thinking about their situation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or in the Marx Brothers. <laughs> yeah, the Marx Brothers resolved it. <laughs> uh, and so in the second section, he's going to kind of finish up with American cinema. Yeah. And so uh, he talks about the kind of fundamental Bergsonism of cinema, the sort of open totality and event in the course of happening. Right. Um,
0: and Italian
1: neorealism yes we'll we'll get to that we're gonna close with that ish <laughs> that in the French new wave but he talks about Robert Altman's films kind of the way the the crowd is no longer what it was in earlier films like in the western the gathering of the crowd was the affirmation of civilization okay yeah. in Altman the crowd is kind of this atomized sort of we could almost like jokingly call it any group, whatever, where it's just like it forms and then it disperses and it's made up of singularities. Yeah. And you can follow any of these singularities and Altman's Nashville is a perfect illustration of this. Like that's, that's what the film is, is Altman tracks 26 different singularities in this environment. Um, and the situation itself sort of becomes elliptical. This is taxi driver uh, is the example he gives here so that um, the character doesn't really have a purpose he sort of is torn between suicide or this political assassination and then he ends up sort of just just he ends up in this violent conflict with this pimp and he becomes a hero but he wasn't trying to be a hero Yeah, there's this kind of dark irony to it And so we see how the stroll is taking the place of the journey. Okay. It's wandering, not traveling with a destination. Right. And the thing that's changed in the later American cinema is that all these ideas seem to be based on or upheld by cliches. Yeah. Yeah. And this is really troubling for Deleuze, that the problem with the post-war cinema is going to be this endless production of cliches. Yeah. And for him, American cinema is only able to get out of these cliches negatively. Yeah. So through, like, parody or through a kind of, like, irony of Taxi Driver, Mm -hmm. it's never going to think these cliches the way European cinema is going to. It's never going to resist (laughs) the way European cinema is going to. So he's going to kind of leave American cinema behind here with one sort of notable exception and a name he hasn't said so far in this book. Orson Welles is going to be really big and the time image and a few classical directors will get us to wells oh really all right um but yeah so i i think my response to this would be that he's somewhat right about 70s american cinema
0: being cliched or being
1: being only to negatively extricate itself sure from cliches and yeah, that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I do think he has a point that the new Hollywood is this reaction to classical Hollywood and Mm -hmm. it takes so much of that imagery onto itself and try and can't get out of it. Yeah. That cinema's past, it's like birth moment kind of haunts it perpetually and that it's still dealing with the same ideas. Yeah, yeah. What I would say is that in the late 80s, so four years after he wrote the time image with the release of Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape and the American independent film movement, is that we do get something like an American time image. Oh, okay. And I would point to directors like Soderbergh, like Tarantino, uh, like eventually Wes Anderson and stuff like that, who do things that aren't just the negative sort of dispersal of cliches like parody or sure that they actually do sort of get to something european (laughs) with a heavily european influence (laughs)
0: right of course of course
1: uh or a heavy japanese influence or whatever right um there there is eventually an american cinema that i think does but what about
0: jim jarmusch
1: perfect example yes absolutely i i jarmusch is part of that generation of american yeah. filmmakers that that's sort of the next generation who who would finally sort of rid themselves of of having to negatively fight these cliches and whose characters can wander without this 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 resistance yeah that they they find a kind of like if, just using pulp fiction as an example that movie is a movie about cliches, yeah. but there's an awareness to it yeah. and a sense of how the universe can be ordered and how coincidence can emerge. And through its use of uh, sort of its nonlinear narrative, and it's these overlapping stories that they these forking paths, these sort of crystalline ways of viewing things emerge in Pulp Fiction in a way they didn't in any 70s cinema really. I think Altman does get pretty close. I think Deleuze is maybe not fair to Altman. But I do think there we can talk about an American time image in especially the sort of post 1989 new American independent cinema. Right. Um and that sort of takes us to the end and italian neorealism where uh in the ruins of italy after the second world war yep. you get this uh society that is neither neither fully the enemy though neither can it claim victory either so unlike in France, where you have the election of de Gaulle and French nationalism and the myth of the resistance sure. to try and unite the country, in Italy you just have people wandering okay. in, the, in the ruins after yeah. the war. And so these, these characters are dealing with the, the sort of cliches of the new American sort of influence in Europe but also with the cliches of national identity that no longer function anymore. And they're in spaces that aren't complete. They're collapsed. They're, they're not where, what they used to be. It's, it's a Rome that is without character. Right. And so you get these characters who wander in any space, whatever. Yep. And they no longer have the same sense of purpose. And the stories no longer have the same sense of purpose. In Bicycle Thieves, you know, the child and his father go looking for the bike, but then it rains and they get distracted and they go off on this meander. And the story no longer cares about, like, what the main goal was. It's about trying to see, like, life. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is going to uh, be really influential on the French New Wave but they're going to see these same spaces and these the same detachment, yeah, in a much sort of younger group of characters, and these characters are going like they they don't care what happens to them, yeah. And you can see this in like Godard's work, especially, but Truffaut's early films as well. They just they have experiences, things happen to them, and they observe it, they watch the world happen, yeah. And so this creates um they're they're kind of doing false movements. They're not they're not following the roles that are prescribed to them. And what Deleuze sees here is he talks about a sort of worldwide conspiracy of clichés. <laughs> That there is this this grand sort of conspiracy to distribute roles and have people occupy them. Right. And what this European cinema does is introduces a character, the, the French New Wave in particular, who doesn't take these roles, who doesn't accept these roles, and who's able to comment on them and exist not necessarily outside them, but with a certain degree of indifference to them. Yeah. And so this starts to resemble a sort of self-reflexive thinking. Okay. The, the image is considering itself as cliche and resisting it and thinking against it. Yeah. And, but this is, this is no longer movement. Right. We're no longer... The, the camera is no longer part of matter seeping into every aspect of life. It is observing someone in thought... It is trying to get at uh something that isn't in the frame yeah that isn't there there's no way there's no way to look with the camera at what we're seeing we might hear something but what we're hearing isn't even necessarily predicated on what we're seeing
0: so we, we we then must recognize that we're looking at the time image. Yes. And we need a whole new frame to yes, understand this. Yes,
1: so we're beyond movement. And so what that's Cinema... W- whack. What Cinema 2 is going to do is be like, here's how you resist a worldwide conspiracy of cliches with film. Right. So I'm going to now go on a crazy thing. I'm excited. I... I assume you and most of your listeners are not familiar with the films of Jack Rivette. He was, he was a member of the French New Wave. He, he was a little bit older, and it took him a while to get started into filmmaking. But he's famous for making very long films. Okay. Usually centered around some kind of localized conspiracy. Okay. So his most famous film that's a lot easier to watch now than it used to be is called out one it's a 12-hour film about two rival theater groups and a conspiracy they may or may not have formed during may 68 okay um and it's it's just this amazing thing that's not a good description of anything it's it has these moments where you're just watching theater performers improvise, but it also has these moments where you're watching these characters try and investigate this conspiracy. Right. This There's all this internal tension and history between them. There's this... The, the characters are interpreting what's going on, and the conspiracy sort of ends up amounting to not a whole lot, but it's a conspiracy nonetheless that sort of motivates them and when i read this final section of this book and he got to this conspiracy of cliches yeah i was like you are writing a jack revet film as philosophy yeah this is this is this is philosophy as like crime thriller right right this is like this is what you're saying is that what if the world is an endless series of cliches? Yeah,
0: these are the stakes.
1: Yeah, what What if there were signs that resisted them and yeah. pointed to ways out, and what if signs that were bad and became a part of it? Yeah. And, like, how do you wander through this world? How do you make sense of this world? And that, to me, is just... It's, it's bonkers. It's, like, I, I can't believe that, like this is maybe what I think's really going on here, is he's trying to he's trying to make a film of philosophy. Yeah. And I think he ends up making a weirdly very exciting film <laughs> but you kind of have to go with him a bit at points. Yeah. And it's like well what's all this biblical stuff and choosing to choose and it's like oh so when you're not surrounded by cliche you have this freedom but when the world becomes cliché how do we choose to choose what do we believe in yeah how do we find our way out of it and so the this book ends on a cliffhanger <laughs> where he introduces this conspiracy and he's like yeah but but there's a way beyond it yeah <laughs> yeah and that's like that's that's what I love about this book is like I don't think I'm going to write too many analyses using cinema 1 but as like A setup for what comes next, I think it's phenomenal. (laughs) Yeah,
0: you're keeping me in suspense. I feel like I gotta go read it, like, immediately. Yeah.
1: I'm very excited. (laughs) Yeah, I don't... I don't love the way Cinema 2 ends. It ends a lot like a Jack Rivet film, where it's like... Yeah, that conspiracy didn't amount to much. But hey... (laughs) There actually wasn't a big threat. Yeah.
0: Maybe this book wasn't necessary.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I think I think there's different readings of it. We can talk about it when we get hit, get there. Yeah. Uh but Cinema 1 anyway. Uh in the books. Yeah. I guess I Yeah, I went through a journey reading this cuz I I remember trying to read Cinema 1 before and I got to those affect chapters and I was just like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure about this. I'm done. But when I got to the end when I got to thirdness, and I was like, "Oh, okay, I see. I see the structure of this book now." Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah and yeah, then yeah. when I got to the conspiracy of cliches, I was like, "It all oh, came together yeah, for sure." Oh, this is this is incredible. Yeah. Of course, no one can get anything out of this. It's such a particular <laughs> thing. It's it's almost better if you treat it as an artwork than if you treat it as like a, a method.
0: Oh yeah. Well, no, definitely. When I was reading it, I was th- I got I got nothing <laughs> from it. Yeah. I got nothing. I was. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I should read this as, like, a, just, like, a very specific, like, taxonomization of, like, different, like, auteurs, different, like, film schools, or if I should take it as, like,
1: a new way for me to even do fucking philosophy. Like, I was... Well, yeah, there's moments, too, because, like, the the movement image, we can talk about movement images that aren't cinema. Like, yeah. And I guess that's what Berkson did, so we don't really need to but still like yeah and we can we can speak about affects yeah in tremendous detail oh for sure uh, and people have yeah and it's it's now kind of tired at this point to <laughs> be honest but um the for me the the sort of the ending where everything just gets ratcheted up to this 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 really intense degree and he's like we're going beyond yeah this is this is not where this ends yeah uh and i and i think back to that thing at the beginning where he talks about um the essence of a thing never appears at the outset but in the middle right. of its development right and it's like okay yeah end of cinema one you introduce the real stakes of what's going on here and what you want to do and it's like all right yes i got it and it's very
0: <laughs> it, clear th- right from the get go that the, it wasn't just going to be the movement image like he yeah. was very clear like this is this is the first part so there could have been some like some kind of meta quality to that to that quote like
1: oh i think i think there very definitely was it's pretty exciting yeah i i think the yeah the the way this ends i will i will treasure and I will... <laughs> i'm going to go watch some jack Ravette films i got 4 hours to kill or god how long his movies are i don't know i could watch one of them probably oh my <laughs> god you got anything else uh yeah, that's everything for now. I can just plug my stuff again. Yeah, for sure. Twitter account, Cello Burke. Instagram, Cello Burke. Uh, find me on Lex uh, if you're in London, Ontario. Uh, if you're coming to the Film Studies Association of Canada conference, I will be the like student liaison for that. So that should be a lot of fun. I'll take everyone to Milos or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll have a good time.
0: Um, I'll... <laughs> sneak my way into there
1: yeah okay and yeah hopefully hopefully we talk about cinema too because i uh, would like to i also find it uh a little bit more useful uh (laughs) than than i find this book but uh i'm i'm curious to now read it as the solution to a grand conspiracy (laughs) i'm i'm happy that you made me because like made me privy to
0: that because reading this i was i didn't get it in that way but now I think I'm going to have a different, or then if I just read the time image, now I'm going to have a better kind of ground to go into that. Yeah. And yeah, all right, great. So if you made it this far, I applaud you. We applaud you. It was great. Um, You know, I guess tune in. Thank you for
1: listening.
0: Yeah, really. Thank you for listening. And if you have any comments, you know how to leave them. Um, And yeah, all right. We'll see you next time. Take care.